Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, Ontario reopens. World leaders gather at the G7. And Catholic bishops want to send an indigenous delegation to meet the Pope. Is that enough? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Going to patio today? No. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ontario starts its reopening plan today. Kudos to Ontarians, especially healthcare workers. However, avoid the giant mask burning parties until further notice. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. This is as hard as it looks. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1211. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Jump into the fun. Uh, yeah, as we finish off week number, it doesn't matter, does it? Uh, 64, but it's a great one, 64, uh, because it's also the week that Ontario uh, starts to reopen, and we're seeing that now. So good news. Uh, you can certainly see there's a bit of a festive spirit. Uh, in and around the province, and that's a good thing. Although, uh, as they're all telling us, uh, be wary, be cautious. Um, you know, no wild. I'll leave it at that. Uh, keep your distance. You know, remember the protocol. We've got to we got to be careful till everyone gets that second shot. Uh, as I mentioned, Ontario into phase one of its uh, reopening plan, and it, it, people are just giddy. It, it's hilarious. It's great to see. Uh, let's hear a report from Dave Woodard from Global News on what's going on. In making the announcement earlier this week, Health Minister Christine Elliott says moving to phase one should be something to be celebrated. This is an exciting time, and we know that there are brighter days ahead. James Roulette, a vice president with Restaurants Canada, agrees, saying that patio's opening won't solve the industry's woes, but it is a good start. We're eager to get out there and back to serving customers. And while it's a step in the right direction, Peel's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Lawrence Lowe, is among many in the province who want you to remember this doesn't mean the pandemic is over. And ensure that you're always masked distancing, and favoring the outdoors. In addition to some stores and restaurants being open for the first time in 2021, Stage 1 also means you can gather outside in groups no larger than 10 people. Dave Woodard at Global News. All right, uh, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, health policy expert. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Boy, when we started talking about this uh, 64 weeks ago, Doctor, do you think it would be this long before we're dipping our toe back in the water? I mean, I, I, I always knew that the pandemic is going to take a toll on us. I just didn't realize how much of a toll that's going to be. And I think we're seeing that now with the impact on our everybody's mental health status and the urge to actually get things reopened back and for us to resume life as we knew it. But there are hopeful signs on the horizon. We're hearing about reopening of different parts of the country. And we're also hearing about the lifting of the quarantine measures at the airports, which means that people will be able to travel in and out of our country more freely we're hearing about employers wanting employees to come back to businesses come fall time. So I think we're, we are starting to see glimpses of what life would look like post-pandemic. Uh, obviously, cases uh, continue uh, to go down. We're hovering around that uh, 550, 574 today. Uh, as you've mentioned, the numbers, uh, those less uh, concerning now, as, we're, as long as we're seeing hospitalization rates stay down and the ICUs uh, continue to slowly uh, empty out a bit. How concerned are you about how we are opening up? Are you worried we might overdo it? 
Well, what, what I'm worried about, which is the same concern that a lot of experts have, is around the variants, and so specifically the Delta variants or the Indian variants and other ones. And so I think the concern now for me is that can we get people in the hotspots vaccinated with our second dose as soon as possible to reduce the community transmission of those variants. And so that's going to be really key as we move forward with the reopening plans. And I want to reiterate something that was said on your show a bit earlier about the need to continue knowing that the pandemic is not over just because you're getting your second dose or just because we're opening up things doesn't mean we can resume life as we knew it before. We need to be calculated. We need to be safe to ensure longevity in our plans of reopening. We can't be short-sighted in our vision. We must remember that this pandemic has variants that can really sort of capitalize and take toll on our communities. And the only way to beat that is to continue to exercise some form of caution. And by that, I mean it, please continue wearing your face mask if you're able to do so. Please continue to social distance, even if you are fully vaccinated. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, uh, we're starting to see um, a focus on the hot spots again, trying to get that second dose in. The government announced yesterday that those that have received their shot prior to uh, May 9th are now eligible uh, for their second. However, that's the mRNA vaccines. Your thoughts on those with the AC waiting longer? Well, I think that we knew that given the negative publicity around AstraZeneca, that People are more, we actually do know that from the data, that the people who live in hotspots are preferring Pfizer even over Moderna. So we're hearing reports about communities where people are not even wanting to get the Moderna vaccine uh, because there's been so much more good publicity on Pfizer. So the preference on the vaccine is creating an impact on uh, the demand on the vaccine, but also on the way we distribute it. So I think as we move forward, I don't, I don't uh, foresee... There's going to be a lot of demand on AstraZeneca. Instead, I actually see that a lot of communities, especially the hotspots, will be demanding more of the mRNA vaccine. Um, and these people that are uh, that got their first dose before May 9th are now eligible for the second. As I mentioned, that's only with the AstraZeneca, or sorry, only with the Pfizer and the Moderna. Should they be bumping up? Should the province be bumping up those that have had AZ and making sure that they get their second dose uh, rather than waiting that 12-week period? Well, from my understanding, the people who had their first dose of AstraZeneca are currently eligible to get their second dose of AstraZeneca. Uh, however, that people who have declined to get AstraZeneca because they're waiting to get the mRNA on the Ontario website, they can go on and book uh, their second appointment of an mRNA vaccine. It's not happening as soon as the, uh, the, the hotspot areas, but I suspect that will change. I'll give you an example. My mother had her first dose of AstraZeneca and decided that she would like an mRNA vaccine for her second dose. She rejected the AstraZeneca second appointment and signed up to get the mRNA in the beginning of July. And so the province is continuously reviewing how it can make sure that anybody who uh, is eligible to get the vaccine can get it in, in, in as soon as possible time frame. So, uh, so uh, a little bit confusing here. So let me try to clarify this. So if you have had, uh, because right now the way it sort of sounded the other day was anyone uh, prior to May 9th can get the vaccine. AstraZeneca, they're still waiting. Uh, uh, they're not moving that up beyond the 12 month per- or sorry, 12 week period. However, you still can go online and book it for uh, after that or at that period. Correct. Uh, so just to be clear here. People who receive, and by that I mean elderly people, so people of older age who've received their first, we're not talking about 
uh, everybody who received their first dose of AstraZeneca. We're talking right. here about uh, people of older age who received right. the vaccine around April and March and maybe sometimes early May. Uh, we're, gives, we're, we're sent emails by pharmacies where they received their first dose of AstraZeneca, right. asking them whether they would like to schedule their second dose of AstraZeneca. However, some of those people have decided they don't want their second dose of AstraZeneca. So the province has provided a portal where they can go on and sign up for an mRNA vaccine for their second dose. In terms of the duration, you're correct. It hasn't really changed the span between the first dose of AstraZeneca and the second one. However, what it is doing right now because of concern around the variant is that it's allowing people in specific hotspots who've been vaccinated before May 9th to actually get their second dose as soon as possible as of Monday. Uh, do you think that they, it should be the same for AstraZeneca, that, uh, you know, if you've received that shot as well, obviously there's still an age and priority here for, you know, for those that are in need more than others. Uh, but should they be, because many people are saying, well, you know, I've had my AstraZeneca shot. Why can't I now um, uh, book my other shot similar to those others before May 9th? Yeah, I agree with that. And I, th- I actually suspect, Scott, what's going to happen is that, uh, you know, by next week, by end of next week, the promise will most likely announce that they will allow yeah. that to happen because yeah. there is that pressure and it's a logical pressure. I think I think what the promise is trying to do is go at this stepwise process. So they're looking at yeah. the data and they're seeing that this Delta variant, this Indian variant is really becoming sort of a big concern in the hotspot. So their focus right now is let's get everybody who's been vaccinated their first dose in those hotspots. Let's get them that second dose. Let's make sure we reduce those. And then they'll shift the focus to address everybody else who's been getting their, who got their first dose of AstraZeneca and other spots. And from what I understand, there's a large shipment of Moderna coming in this month before the end of the month, which could also obviously ease that problem. Correct. However, I will caution, Scott, that we are, I, I have gotten reports where we know that there are communities now where people surprisingly are not going for Moderna and are actually rejecting really? the Moderna vaccine. And so it's incredible. I mean, we're learning so much about human behavior and choice, right? Um, and we're still trying to understand what is happening, why some, not all, some communities are members are choosing not the Moderna and insisting on Pfizer. Is it around promotion? Are we not clarifying that the two are the same technology, which is mRNA technology? We're not quite sure about the reasons that's underlying the, the focus of some individuals to choose Pfizer over Moderna. There have been no issues around Moderna that we know of, have there? Correct. No, there has not been any issues, but I think I suspect, I mean, this is a speculation, Scott, that there's been more attention around Pfizer on social media platforms. So, you know, there's been more talk about the Pfizer vaccine than the Moderna. Moderna is more a quiet vaccine in the background. Didn't really get that center stage attention. And And it is making an impact. So it's worth considering to see why that is happening. Uh, it's interesting, Doctor, we haven't heard a lot from NASI lately. They're sort of leaving the communication to Health Canada. Well, I think because Health Canada is really more aligning themselves with NASI did. I find that NASI, from a health policy perspective, sort of almost took center stage when they didn't align or agree with what Health Canada says. I think Health Canada has learned their lessons when they went against NASI, and NASI made very you know, strong statements in the media that not to do that, that to align themselves as close as possible. And I suspect that's what's happening. And also, we're we're seeing a reduction in COVID numbers. We're roll up with the vaccine has been strong. So I think we're doing a good thing. And so Nazi doesn't feel the need to, st- you know, to really be sort of more taking center stage. Uh, 
Excuse me. Obviously, we've certainly heard of the concern over the variants, uh, especially the Delta variant, as you're speaking of. We've seen uh, places like the U.K. and 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 the United States take off with a boom in vaccination. Now it has slowed down a bit and uh, the hesitancy rate is there in the United States and such. Uh, are you surprised we haven't seen more of these variants pop up in those spots? Uh, no, but we actually have been getting reports, Scott, that some experts around the world are looking at countries like or places like the seashells, uh, which is an island off the, the coast of Asia. And, and the seashells have seen that they have 67 percent of their population have been vaccinated with AstraZeneca. But all of a sudden now they're actually having a rise in numbers because of the variants. And the point I'm trying to make here is that we're, you know, global health experts and everybody involved is paying really, really, really close attention to countries where there's been high rates of vaccination to see whether they're having a rise in numbers, and if so, how dramatic, how drastic of an influence that rise in number has had on their health systems. And by that, I mean, is that are they seeing an increase in ICU? We don't have conclusive answers at the moment. I think the focus for all countries around the world, including us here in Canada, is to get our population, as many of our population vaccinated as fast as possible with two doses to reduce the global transmission of the virus overall. A G7 summit going on in the UK right now. Uh, they are pledging to get the rest of the world vaccinated. What needs to be done here? Well, countries need to step up. Enough with the talk and more with the action. So, you know, if you understand that COVID-19 transcends borders and it doesn't contain itself in one country, then leaders of those countries need to follow their words with action and they need to be able to be committed to the global plight of providing vaccines. India was a catastrophe when it happened to COVID-19 and it was a very telling sign to all our leaders around the world that you know you need to make sure that the entire world is protected as well as your own population Um, and I hope that that's the spirit or the mind frame that those leaders are going into G7 talking about I mean we were hearing that a lot of them are committing to sharing vaccines and especially countries that have ample supply of it and we're hoping that Canada will also be one of those countries that will be able to share available vaccines that our own population doesn't need. Can you give us a bit of an update on India? Where are they now? We certainly know how bad it was. It's still bad. It's not where they want to be. And, and, you know, the thing is with media is that we focus on countries that have a crisis for, you know, a hot minute and then we move on yeah. to the next crisis. And the, the reality is there's still, I talked to a counterpart in India yesterday and they reported that, you know, healthcare workers are drained, they're exhausted, people are mentally and just physically just out of resources on all fronts, and the country is trying to rebuild itself, and it will take a very long time. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Great news for Ontarians as we make it to the first stage. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Have a great weekend. Same to you. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everybody. Let the good times roll. Uh, you know, as long as you keep your distance and... Remember some of the protocol. It's uh, not at the finish line yet, but we're getting pretty close. And stage one uh, opens today. Great news. And uh, people are pretty giddy about this. It's uh, it, it's great to see. It's great to uh, it's great to see people have uh, some optimism and uh, some hope moving forward. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, we know the patios are open. That seems to be all anyone really cares about. Now the golf is open. Uh, let's bring in Nick Westall, journalist for Global News. He is with us now. Nick, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, Scott, I am. Thank you, and uh, hope you and your audience are doing okay too. It's there almost seems to be a giddiness in the air, doesn't there, Nick? Oh, a hundred percent. I am. Um, we were at uh, downtown uh, Toronto Bar last night, and 
even just the, the minutes leading up to midnight. There was a lineup outside. They were doing almost like a New Year's Eve countdown. Um, so definitely a lot of interest in the patios. But the other big piece we're looking at today is non-essential retail opening. Huge news for uh, those businesses that have been shuttered for uh, more than two months. So that's the other uh, big thing we're following today. All right. So uh, I was going to ask you, that was one of my questions. If you were out and about last night at 1201 when the doors did swing open, uh, were there many participating? Oh, yeah. They had uh, um, all their tables were booked. In fact, uh, the restaurant we were at, uh, they said they actually had to stop answering the phone because they couldn't keep up with all the phone calls they're coming for bookings. It's um, And that wasn't just uh, one restaurant. That was multiple restaurants we were hearing that. And we're also hearing that staffing is, is become an issue because obviously it's the mad dash to rehire now. Yeah, mad dash. And then also um, supplies too, right? You got to contact the suppliers and restock uh, the fridges. I mean, let's keep in mind, it was on Monday when the province actually confirmed that you know, we were going to be reopening on this day. So they've only had uh, just a matter of days to have a hard start time. So um, for sure, businesses are scrambling. So uh, let's get to the list. What can we do in this first stage? What does it mean for us? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, obviously, if you're looking to get outside, uh, you know, meet up with friends and family. So the outdoor gathering limit, that has moved up to 10 people. And, uh, you know, what we've seen in a lot of the restrictions is that, you know, it's restricted to your own household. But um, under this new uh, 10-person cap, uh, you aren't restricted to one household. You can mix so long as you follow social distancing and all that sort of thing. Um, that was another question that some, were, that some had, Nick. Sorry to interrupt, but yep. if you are, for example, going to one of those outdoor patios and you're, you can gather in groups of four in, the, uh, in that seating arrangement, do they have to be within your family? That has been asked. Yeah, so primarily, yes. Now, there are a couple of exceptions um, under the rules. One of them being is that um, somebody who lives alone um, can join with another right. family at that table. Also, uh, if somebody at the table needs a caregiver, the caregiver can join over and above um, that four. But still family only at that one table? Pri- primarily, yes. Yeah. Hmm. At least All right, sorry. Con- continue on. I, inter- I interrupted. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, uh, I mean, when you look at uh, the essential retail stores, you know, you're still... Those have always been operating for the past couple months. That'll continue to operate at 25% of group capacity. And non-essential retail stores, so think of, you know, those sections in Walmart. I'm sure you remember anybody else mm, yeah. in one of these types of stores. The staff were rushing to put up these barricades. I know my local Walmart, I went, they were using boxes of toilet paper to block off people from going to close. That's no longer the case now. So if you need socks or whatever, all those types of things, you can go get that. Small businesses with uh, street access, um, you, you, those will be open. Again, a 15% capacity limit. And if you're out and about, at least in Toronto today, we have our crews out. There are people lined up, literally a city block, to get into a winner's in downtown Toronto. And, uh, you know, that's wow. a result of demand, but also the fact that there are hard caps that the stores need to keep in mind um, right. when doing that. So, yeah, you're... Be prepared for a wait wherever you're going. That's the bottom line. Um, and we understand camping is open now. Yes. Yeah. So uh, day camps are open um, for the kids, but also if you want to do overnight camping at campgrounds, uh, that's allowed. Ontario parks, if you're trying to get to um, one of those facilities, those are open now. Um, and also speaking on the recreational side, too, 
outdoor sports training and personal training that can happen now for um, groups of up to 10 people. So that's another thing that, uh, that uh, has come into effect today. Uh, another one that people were always curious about was, you know, personal grooming, hair care, that sort of thing. They're still left out of this. Are they not? Yep. And, uh, it's, uh, it, you know, it's funny. You talk about all the things people ask about. One of, it's one of the top questions I've been getting is when can I get a haircut? Well, yeah. um, there's no firm date yet. So under the framework for the rules, uh, what needs to happen now is three weeks need to pass. And at the end of those three weeks, the Ontario government will look at the healthcare indicators. So hospitalizations, ICU admissions, um, in conjunction with vaccinations. So, uh, we've already hit the minimum um, first doses uh, to move into stage two, which is right. 70% of Ontarians. Um, what'll be key is making sure that at least 20% of Ontario residents have had a second dose. So if those conditions are met and the healthcare indicators continue to improve, we could be moving into that step two where the hair care um, and all those types of services, that could come as early as July 2nd. So uh, we know that, and as you just mentioned, these are all in three-week intervals, 21-day intervals from one stage to another. And as you uh, beautifully lined out what the criteria is to get us there, uh, that being said, if we arrive at that criteria earlier, is is there any chance that in any one of these stages that three weeks can be reduced or are those hard, hard no, targets? No, the, the three weeks has been a very hard target by the Ontario government. They're taking a very cautious reopening approach um, uh, to avoid any potential um, setbacks. And as I said, I mean, it's a minimum of three weeks. So it could be longer depending if there are, you know, blips in the healthcare indicators or if the vaccinations, um, at least on the second doses, slow down. Uh, and from and uh, from what I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nick here, but the reason that they've that they've gone to that 21 days and they've stuck to it is that that's the time it takes once you get the vaccination to where the efficacy it is is at its full force. Correct. And if also if there's let's say there's an outbreak, for instance, we know that uh, COVID-19 can take up to two weeks to show up in testing as well. So yeah. combined with um you know, the vaccines in addition to, you know, incubation of uh, the virus, those two things um, are sort of driving that 21-day minimum. Um, and then, like I said, also, we also know that when it comes to ICU admissions and hospitalizations, those are, are take a longer time to trail off. So we haven't received any firm fresh, uh, thresholds in terms of what the province specifically is looking for in our hospitals to or sort of say, okay, let's move ahead. Um, but, uh, you know, generally they're going to want to see an improvement, um, over that three week period. Are officials expecting a uptick, a slight uptick as a result of reopening? Yeah, good question. I mean, we heard from, um, Dr. Steiny Brown yesterday and Brianna mentioned it off the top there, um, that, you know, they're certainly going to be looking at that. Um, you know, the Delta variant is posing, um, some serious, uh, concern in there, saying it could be the dominant strain. Why that's potentially a concern is that it is considerably more transmissible, according to scientists, um, than the alpha variant, that one that was first detected in the United Kingdom. So there's a strong potential, um, you know, for an increase if that Delta variant takes hold. But now their province is pivoting to try to, you know, uh, ensure that second doses are getting out in these 
so-called the Delta hotspot. So, yeah, it, it, it's um, definitely a concern. But um, even as Dr. Brown admitted yesterday, even with the possible rise of Delta variant, he said it's not a doomsday scenario. It's, uh, you know, things are overall looking pretty good based on what we're seeing with vaccinations and the current trends. Will it be tough to get a seat at any establishment this weekend in the province? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, you better have some friends uh, in uh, good places <laughs> to try to get a table because uh, if it's based on what we're hearing, uh, you're probably going to be waiting weeks. It's probably harder to get a seat at on patio right now than it is a second dose of your vaccine. Oh, uh, you you are not <laughs> wrong there. Let me just say that. You are not wrong. Uh, Nick Westall has been with us, journalist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight uh, for more on all of this as Ontario uh, slowly reopens. Nick, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Same to you. Uh, we're going to phone a local uh, restaurant, patio, restaurant, uh, bar, pub, whatever, and find out just what is going on. You, you know, it's tough, I guess, to get perhaps a seat at a uh, local watering hole patio. So we're going to do as, uh, our best to at least get you what the feeling's like, get you get you the vibe uh, as if you're almost there. Perhaps get your own drink in your hand as we bring in Michelle Fieber's operating partner at The Honest Lawyer, 1115 Fennel Avenue. Michelle, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am well, thank you. So what's this week been like for you? It's been chaos. <laughs> Super exciting, but chaos. <laughs> So uh, now, uh, is, were you open today, or did you open last night at twelve oh one? No, we opened today. So, what has been the biggest challenge this week for you? Uh, just trying to get our teams back in order, and uh, because obviously everyone was laid off, um, and then trying to get the stocks in the stores. So, what's the atmosphere like at the Honest Lawyer now? What's it? Give us a give us a set the scene. Uh, we are, like, raring to go. We are super excited. My team is ch- chomping at the bit to get started here. So, Are you open now? Yep, we are. We've got half a full patio already, so, yeah, we're already going. How are the people? What, what's the clientele? Uh, what's the buzz they're, there? They're elated to be here. They're just super happy to sit back down on a patio. Everyone's happy. It's um, it's just it's so positive. <laughs> are you anticipating that you're going to be busy all weekend long? I obviously I'm hoping for it. I'm scheduled for it. We have a, a lot of resos on board, so yeah, we're we're ready to rock out. Do you think there's going to be some hesitancy, Michelle? Do you think it's like, oh, everybody's the doors are open, but some of us are scared to stick our heads out? I think that there's still some people who are nervous, and fair enough. Uh, but because we're outdoors, I don't think it'll be quite as hesitant because, again, we're completely spaced out, six feet apart. Got to still wear your mask till you sit down. So. Exposure minimally low. It, does it sort of have a feeling like it's New Year's? I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it? It, it feels like Christmas. It really yeah. feels like Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a better. Like, it's my birthday. It's Christmas. It's Easter. Yeah. They're all rolled into the same day. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good way to look at it. Uh, you were talking about staffing. Was it difficult to get everybody uh, back in line before? But before you open the doors, I, I know in some situations, uh, many lost staff and, uh, you know, people have gone on to other things. Was it was it difficult to get the staff back up? Uh, it is super difficult because people have had to take other jobs. And now, of course, job stability is concerned if we get shut down again. So they're not really wanting to leave the jobs that are stable. 
Uh, Welland just opened in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, so unfortunately, I didn't have a time to hire a full staff there because we were shut down. So um, I'm basically going to live in Welland 24 hours a day. <laughs> So what's it been like for you to open up? And we've talked to many businesses that have opened up and, and kept going despite the pandemic. What's that been like for you, uh, opening the second location in Welland in the midst of all this? Um, it's been tough. It's been really tough. We've gone up and up and down. We've tried to reopen for takeout and done the Uber, Skip, DoorDash. We had characters running around. We've pretty much pitched everything that we can to try to stay afloat and relevant. Um, but it's tough. It's, it's super tough. So uh, what do you have to say to your customers now that the doors of the uh, the Honest Lawyer are open and uh, they can walk through? I cannot wait to see all of you. I miss you all. All right. Website we can go to, Michelle? At www.honestlawyer.com. Honestlawyer.com to find out more. Michelle Fiebers with his operating partner of The Honest Lawyer, one in Welland and 1115 Fennel Avenue, open for business and uh, hoping you enjoy the patio. Michelle, thanks for the time. Good luck moving forward. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. Oh, here's today's daily commentary. My wife and I had a golf lesson yesterday. Imagine that. That is actually the easiest way to get on the greens these days, with tee times being a hot commodity. When I worked out west, I remember learning to ski as a young adult in Alberta and meeting Olympian Crazy Canuck Ken Irwin at Sunshine Village in Banff. He said, no matter what your skill level is or how long you've been playing any sport, it is always great to take a lesson at the start of a new season. Unfortunately, I cannot say I have adhered to that schedule in anything in life, but after being locked up for what seems like a century, I'm looking for the outdoor fix of any kind. My wife is an avid golfer. I'm more of a hack that likes the outdoors, peeing in the woods, and an active bar cart. Not only did I learn how to hit the ball better, but it was also a chance to feel what it was like to be out in nature and public again with others, enjoying life albeit at a very safe distance. I think that was as thrilling as the golf lesson. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, let's move on. Also, uh, world news going on, G7 Summit going on in the UK, and I'm sure they're a little giddy as well because uh, this is the first time they've had a chance to get together and talk about this uh, uh, the global pandemic uh, on the world stage and, and how we all move forward with this, including uh, getting the rest of the world vaccinated. Let's bring in Oral Braun, Professor of International Relations, Political Science, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Oral, thank you for the time. I hope you're uh, doing well. Uh, thank you. I'm fine. So let's talk about the mood, the atmosphere uh, at this G7. How is this different, or is it different from those in the past? It is, first of all, an in-person summit, so there is relief about that. But I think there's also a great deal of relief, in a sense, that they are dealing with a different American president, someone who is not confrontational or bombastic or vulgar, let's say, the way Mr. Trump was. And so you can see it uh, with Angela Merkel, how thrilled she has been to meet with President Biden. She talked about the return of multilateralism. So the atmospherics definitely have improved. The relationship, at least in those terms, 
uh, has received a big boost. But there are, of course, very serious problems that need to be addressed, and those will not be resolved overnight. It's an ongoing uh, uh, effort, and we will have to see how the promises that are being made or the aspirations that are being expressed, how they will materialize in terms of effective policy. That was my next question, was uh, the Biden factor and the fact that uh, he is now in charge of the United States rather than Donald Trump, who seemed to be very divisive. And I remember past meetings such as this, it was very little about uh, what was being talked about or, or the agenda and more about his actions and, and who he offended or he, he, he didn't offend. Uh, are we seeing more, a more unified G7 as a result of this? That is the appearance, that it is a more unified uh... G7, but of course, uh, you know, you can unify a group by making concessions. And one of the things that Mr. Biden has done was made some concessions, for example, on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which was opposed by the previous American administration, uh, which is going to take a vast amount of natural gas to uh, Germany. Uh, Mr. Biden waived that opposition, even though he canceled the Keystone pipeline here in North America. And uh, that, of course, was very much welcomed by Germany. So that uh, bought him uh, bonus points. But there are real issues that remain. Uh, There is not a great deal of difference uh, in the desire of uh, the previous administrations in Washington and the current one uh, that uh, the Europeans need to spend more on their own defense. That despite the fact that Mr. Biden is flattering the European countries and uh, is showing a great deal of warmth towards Angela Merkel and towards uh, Emmanuel Macron, the United States is beginning to shift its attention more and more to the Pacific, where the threat from from China has been increasing. China is the emerging uh, major rival of the United States. Consequently, when you have to deal with Russia, and let's not forget that uh, Mr. Biden will meet with Putin on the 16th in Geneva following this conference, the Europeans need to carry a larger burden. There's that consensus in Washington underneath on this, and that hasn't changed. Uh, getting back to that situation with the pipeline, and this is a natural gas pipeline uh, that brings uh, gas from Russia into Germany, I understand. Why did Donald Trump oppose that? Why would Biden have approved that? Well, Donald Trump opposed it because a good many of the countries, whether it was Ukraine or Poland, are absolutely livid at uh, the fact that they are being pressured constantly by Russia. Ukraine has been invaded. The part of its territory has been illegally annexed. And this pipeline is a kind of way for Moscow to get around shipping directly through Ukraine or through Poland, making additional profits weakening the alliance, uh, creating uh, more opportunities for Russia to use leverage uh, because of uh, increased dependence, in the case of Germany, on Russian uh, energy. So there were many countries, not just the United States, but the Poles and Ukrainians and the countries uh, in the Baltic states were pressuring the United States to stop this pipeline. And why now? The pipeline was close to completion. Uh, The Germans had invested a lot of money in it. Uh, Germany has been used to making lots of profits while the United States paid for a great deal of the defense protection. And uh, 
this kind of uh, dissatisfaction in the United States goes back a, a very long time, uh, whether it was the first President Bush or Ronald Reagan even, or uh, Bill Clinton, even President Obama has been pressing the Europeans to spend more. Let's not forget that uh, under the Obama administration, there was a guideline that was agreed upon where the NATO states would be spending at least 2% of their GDP on defense. Germany, which is a fabulously wealthy country, is nowhere near that. Italy is barely over the 1% mark. And the American contention, usually expressed in a rather polite way, was that uh, the defense of Europe cannot be more important to the United States than it is to the Europeans. Mr. Trump took this to a new level, and he was sometimes brutal in the pressure that he brought, but he did get them to increase expenditures yeah. a little bit more. And that becomes even more important right now because the Biden administration has essentially frozen American defense spending. So uh, is, is as a result of this pipeline, is that is that a result? Is that hoping to leverage uh, countries like Germany to spending more on defense? Perhaps that is a hope. I think uh, it was a kind of down payment on better relations with Germany. Right. And uh, Mr. Biden said, well, this was a concession to improve alliance relations. And if those alliance relations now will lead to inducing Germany to spend more, then I think that will be successful. If it doesn't, then it just uh, gives Russia more opportunities to employ what has been called pipeline diplomacy. And Russia has never hesitated to use those kind of advantages. Mr. Putin is a very divisive uh, leader. Uh, Russia is not a superpower. It has lots of nuclear weapons, but its economy, in nominal terms, is roughly the size of Italy. It's about one-eighth or one-tenth that of the United States. But uh, on its own borders, uh, he has been able to threaten, to pressure, to prod, and, and, and provoke, to set one European country against another. And he most likely will try to uh, continue to do that. That is why NATO unity is essential. How you uh, arrive at that unity is another matter. What is involved in that unity is it more than just, you know, wonderful statements uh, and handshakes uh, that that we see, and it's, uh, the warmth is very visible. The relief uh, in Angela Merkel's eyes is striking that she's meeting not with Donald Trump, uh, but with Biden. Mm. But the Biden administration will want the Europeans to carry a larger, larger part of the burden. And then, of course, there are all sorts of other issues, whether it's COVID, whether it is uh, inequality, whether it is climate, uh, whether it's having a minimum uh, tax around the globe so companies cannot just flee from one jurisdiction to another in order to evade taxes. Those are all on the table, and these are important but difficult issues to resolve. How much time will be spent on the G uh, uh, at the G7 on China, and will the Prime Minister get a chance to mention the two Michaels to anyone, specifically uh, President Biden? I'm sure that uh, Mr. Uh, Trudeau will mention the two Michaels because uh, it is an appalling situation, uh, and uh, China will be uh, an important uh, point of discussion given 
how China has uh, become increasingly assertive, uh, at the very least in foreign policy, even militarily threatening in the immediate region, whether it is uh, in the South China Sea or directly against uh, Taiwan. Uh, so in a way, there will be two elephants in the room, China, which is not uh, a member of the G7, and Russia, which used to be a member of the G8, but was kicked out after it uh, invaded uh, Crimea and annexed it illegally. Ara Braun has been with us, Professor of International Relations and Political Science and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. Arl, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, of course, there's been lots of news that has come over uh, our desk in the last uh, a, a few days, few weeks, and uh, it has been an incredibly emotional uh, roller coaster ride for all Canadians uh, in the last week or so. Uh, not only the fatigue around COVID-19, but also the horrific story coming out of London and, of course, Kamloops. Uh, Kamloops, where uh, the residential school there, uh, below the site of the former residential school, uh, the remains of 215 students uh, found there. And, of course, uh, now the call is for action to, to not only uh, deal with this issue, but also issues, because uh, this could very well be the tip of the iceberg for other locations of other uh, former residential schools right the way across the country. Uh, a lot of politicians uh, commenting on uh, both of these tragedies uh, over the past week or so. But again, it all comes down to action. And specifically with this uh, action, uh, many are looking for the Catholic Church to do its part. Uh, although they have acknowledged the situation, uh, still to the point where the Pope has not uh, apologized or recognized an apology, uh, and, and and many are asking why that is the situation. New information coming out that uh, the Catholic bishops uh, here plan to send an, indi- an indigenous delegation to meet Pope Francis on the residential school uh, issue, but this is apparently something that's been in the works uh, for a couple of years is not necessarily something a result of uh, Kamloops. To get more on all of this, let's bring in Dr. Don LaBelle, Harvard, President of the Ontario Native Women's Association and Director at Trent University, and is with us now. Don, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very good. Thank you. So uh, we're now finding out that the Catholic bishops plan to send an Indigenous delegation to meet the Pope. Your thoughts on this? Uh, however, this is not a direct result of what we have found out from Kamloops. We understand they've been working on this for a couple of years. What are your thoughts? I think it's important that this happen, and I think for that particular delegation that goes over, our hope is that they are able to convince the Pope to open his eyes to the importance of apologizing, not just to a handful of a delegation that happens to be chosen to go to the Vatican to be in his presence, but, you know, that wouldn't be sufficient. The the conversation and the apology needs to be provided here to all of the survivors, all of those who lost family members, not just a, a select few in private. Uh, what about the timeline here? Because obviously we're talking about this now after the horrific discovery in Kamloops, but apparently they've been trying to do this for a couple of years. You can certainly see how a pandemic may uh, throw a stick in the spokes of that. But but is this lip service or is this do you, how do you feel about this actual uh, meeting? Well, I think the recent discovery of the 215 bodies of children in these 
mass graves, I'm hoping is really going to change the conversation that they're having when they're over there. I mean, one would imagine, obviously, this wasn't even on the agenda when this meeting was planned. And, you know, it was at that point about the you know larger picture of residential schools, of reconciliation. But this current discovery really changes that conversation because how do we have reconciliation? How do we even begin to talk about reconciliation with the church if the, the records for those 215 bodies have, for that particular order still have not been released? I mean, there's certain things that have to happen. Otherwise, apologies are meaningless. Uh, from what we understand, and everybody obviously focusing on the Pope to make uh, some sort of of apology, but uh, and I think it was you that mentioned uh, that it's not necessarily or the protocol here to to, to make that happen is it starts uh, with the Canadian Association of Bishops here, uh, and they have not made that formal request. Isn't it not odd they have not made that formal request yet? They're organizing uh, a meeting with a, an Indigenous delegation. Well, and there seems to be a lot of dancing around um, and and passing the buck. I've you know been looking into this a lot recently and seeing that you know there pointed out that there have been a number of dioceses that have apologies, a number of orders that have apologized. But the issue is that the Catholic Church as a whole, as an institution, has not claimed their responsibility and not apologize. And that's a very distinct difference. I mean, one could imagine if the government of Canada, the difference if they said, you know, the government of Canada will not apologize because this was an action of the Ministry of Indian Affairs, as it was called at the time, and to sort of try to pass responsibility off onto individual dioceses or orders is really not acknowledging the that this was an institutional project. It, it wasn't the actions of individual errant priests or nuns or, or people. It was it was part of a, an institutional project. Why do the Canadian? Why does the Canadian Association of Bishops not want to address this with the Pope? And again, it seems that they're the gatekeepers to get to the Pope. Yet they're uh, again instigating this meeting. Is it their hope that they won't have to ask, and the Pope will come to this conclusion on his own? Because you, you're, you're sort of you're setting up a meeting between these two bodies anyway. So it would just seem that would be the natural progression. It should be the natural progression. My fear is that, you know, this particular meeting uh, would be seen in place of uh, yeah. of the Pope coming here to apologize. And, you know, I think those survivors, those people who are still among us, you know, even here in Peterborough, you know, we had a, a survivor come and speak at a ceremony earlier this week about her experience in the residential school, those survivors deserve for the Pope to come and apologize to them, not just to Perry Bellegarde, not just to a handful of elders or survivors on behalf of all. You know, the trauma that they went through, what was taken from them, they deserve a direct apology for him to come here and deliver that. Any idea who who will be a part of this delegation? How do they decide that? You mentioned Perry Bellegarde. Is he just assumed to be a part of this? I think that would be an assumption that the, you know, the national indigenous organizations would have their key representatives there. And from what I've seen on this, that they're also talking about a select group of elders, uh, residential school survivors and youth, you know, and 
And I think you know, we don't want to dismiss this. Obviously, you know, having these kind of meetings is important. But I think given the change from when this meeting was starting to be organized to where we're at now with the finding of these mass graves means that the conversation needs to be very distinctly different and that this needs to be just the first step in continuing to push for the release of the records and a formal apology for all survivors, not instead of. And as somebody pointed out to me recently that, you know, we're not talking about ancient Viking burials. We're not talking about yeah. the church apologizing for something that happened, you know, in, in the distant history, because as somebody pointed out, you know, when they asked why weren't we taught about this in schools? Well, because when I was in school, this wasn't history. This was still going on. This yeah. is still a current issue. And, you know, that makes it distinctly different in terms of the implications of apologizing for something that happened in ancient history where there's no survivors, but we still have those survivors living here, and that does have larger legal implications. You were talking about how uh, this could be seen as being largely symbolic, uh, going through this whole exercise and bringing the, this group over uh, and, and paying lip service and, and nothing really more coming out of them, uh, out of this rather. But on the other hand, if, you know, you, you talk about uh, the chief and everybody else heading over there and then including survivors and then telling this story, uh, I can you see the Pope changing his mind? Because to me, that would be enough to convince anyone. I would hope so. And again, it's like if... If that doesn't convince him, then yeah. what does? What does precisely? And that's, and maybe that's what the Canadian Catholic bishops are hoping will come out of this. And again, I think that the stakes have changed significantly in terms of what the apology, what we're apologizing for. Now, you know, this has has changed from, you know, what people talk about, you know, tragedy, things that happened, well intentioned people that went wrong versus this is a crime having the desecration of human bodies in this way is criminal activity regardless of the justification and you know these crimes this kind of genocide is is distinctly different in in nature than than, and than what people have been talking about before i i think the the stakes have changed won't that delegation have to know what the agenda is before the meeting starts? I mean, you know, as you mentioned, as we mentioned, this is, you know, they've been working on this for a while, long before the discovery, the horrific discovery at Kamloops. Uh, that being said, obviously it's gone, as you've said, from a general meeting about residential schools and the horror there to look at this and what we've discovered now. So um, won't that agenda sort of have to be discussed before this even starts? In other words, you know, this Indigenous delegation won't even go unless we get to talk about this. Is that accurate? Well, I think it, that certainly should be the case. You know, if the, any kind of you know, parameters are put on this visit that we are not going to speak about certain things, then there's no point in having the conversation. You know, if we, we, they have to be open to and willing to acknowledge and discuss these, this new situation. This is, it's, it literally is just beyond appalling. It's not shocking. It's tragic. It's horrific. And it is criminal. 
And is th- and is this is this deflecting from the real issue or the responsibilities the government has to hold here? Uh, because it seems, and I think we were talking about this before, there's a recent poll that said the majority of Canadians blame the church more than they blame the government of the day uh, for this. So it, it almost seems as if the church is giving government an out by allowing the focus to fall on them as opposed to equally between both the people that came up with the idea and the people that ran these residential schools. Well, it's interesting to note that in the original uh, settlement with the residential school survivors, the government took on the responsibility um, on behalf of the church for what happened and, you know, essentially let the church off the hook in that original lawsuit. And And yet now is focusing on demanding the church apologize. So again, it's flipped around again. Well, exactly. And it's, it's this passing of blame between, you know, Saying one saying that the other is responsible because they're the ones who actually committed the crime versus, you know, the others, the ones who committed the crime saying, well, you know, we were instructed and essentially contracted to do this by the Canadian government. Like, let's not forget, the Canadian government paid the church to provide these residential schools to mm-hmm. you. And we can't even pretend anymore that everybody was somehow unaware of what was happening because the massive documentation reports back and forth saying, you know, what the conditions were, what was happening, the extremely high death rates in these residential schools, you know, reports that now show that children had a a much greater chance of dying in residential schools than soldiers did in the trenches of World War II. I mean, and that was known at the time about these exceptionally high death rates and the reports going back and forth. And nobody doing anything about it, seeing it as a sort of necessary casualty of the process, the, the important process of assimilation. And this was just sort of collateral damage, you know, these, these precious lives of these children. And, you know, to go from that kind of argument to the desecration of, of children in this way is this is not just about you know, assimilation gone wrong, well-intentioned processes gone wrong. This this changes the, the very nature of what we're talking about. Uh, at what stage is this meeting with this uh, delegation from the Indigenous community and the Pope? Is this still very much in, in the formal stages of, of, of figuring th- uh, things out, or are, is it actually to the point where it's going to happen and a delegation has been selected? When is this going to When is this going to go down? Right now, they're saying it's supposed to happen before the end of the year. I think, you know, as you were just talking about the restaurants reopening, and, you know, there have been lots of promises made since the last year and a half that we have all been dealing with COVID in terms of we all thought, oh, just a few months, we just have to get through the summer, we just have to get through Christmas, and, you know, that endpoint keeps getting pushed back. So I think it'll be wonderful if it happens before the end of the year. I think right now that's it's optimistic. We're all sort of waiting and holding our breath to see what happens in terms of international travel. But the interesting part is the rest of us, the world has continued to work in virtual means, has continued to move forward. We, you know, things that are important, we found ways to make them happen Mm -hmm. instead of just simply putting everything on hold. And so if the Pope wants to, have an apology and and wants to plan a trip here at some future point that can still happen but there is nothing in that that is preventing an official apology right now 
Good point. Uh, give us an update on Kamloops. Uh, what has the, where is the community right now on this moving forward? We had talked about how uh, the community will have to decide where they go and how they proceed moving forward. Uh, has there any, been any, any more on this as far as a local, uh, a local development? I, I haven't seen any more on you know, in terms of decisions and in, in what's going to happen in Kamloops other than, you know, the, the decision that the community is going to be responsible for the decision how that investigation works out. And as we said, the RCMP is playing a supportive role. What I find more interesting is that a student sent me a link last night about an additional 100 bodies um, in unmarked graves at the Brandon Residential School mm. that came out six days ago. And... I thought, you know, how does this not make the news? How did this not become news to everybody? And I had to ask her to send me the link. And, you know, again, here we are. So it was 100 this time instead of 215. So it's, it's not newsworthy. It's, it's tragic that here we are yet again, that the lives of Indigenous children didn't even make the news. Dr. Don Laval, Harvard with us, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association, director of Trent University, uh, Catholic bishops uh, wanting to send an Indigenous delegation to meet with Pope Francis on the residential school issue. Doctor, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Interesting. We're just talking to uh, Dr. Don Laval, Harvard, president of the Ontario Women's Association, uh, director at Trent. We were talking about the, the Kamloop scenario. Sorry, the Kamloops story and the discovery of 215 uh, bodies, the remains of students, kids, uh, underneath the former residential school of Kamloops. And as uh, Dr. Don LaBelle Harbour pointed out, uh, just this week, conver- uh, confirmation, I believe, of 100 uh, found below a uh, residential school in Brandon. And unfortunately, that not making the news the way uh, this first story did. And as she pointed out, I guess it's half as many as the 215, so maybe not as interest. I don't know. Uh, and let's be serious. Uh, there's other another horrific issue happening in Canada, and that being the London attack. So there's been lots going on, but still uh, no excuse to not be paying better attention, and we'll certainly do our part to help that. All right. Uh, you remember we were talking about the We Charity? Was that before the pandemic? No, that was as a result of the pandemic. That's right. It was uh, designed to, of course, facilitate students who uh, had lost jobs. We Charity was ill-equipped to run the student program, so says the Ethics Committee, to talk more about all of this. Bradley Metlin with us, consultant with Upstream Strategy Group, and with us now. Bradley, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, thank you. Uh, a really quick synopsis. What was the We Charity supposed to do here, just to refresh everybody? Right. So they were supposed to create a program for post-secondary students during the summer. Um, so last summer, when the pandemic was still um, in full force, um, in 2020, they were supposed to basically create a program that would allow students to sign up, be connected with volunteer opportunities. And then because they were volunteering, the government was going to then give them money that would have been almost like wages, almost like CERB, um, as a way to supplement income that they would have lost because so many businesses um, were unable to employ them last summer. Um, the idea was that it would have been a student version of CERB, but instead of um, just being off work, they would have volunteered to so, uh, to receive that. So what went horribly wrong? When did this go off the tracks? Uh, well, it went off the tracks 
relatively early. I mean, the ethics report that came out yesterday said that uh, we had never undertaken a project close to this magnitude and that they were just not equipped to deal with this. Um, and so that was that was a key problem. They're, they're not, when you think of We Charity, you think of the massive events at Rogers Center where there's celebrities and motivational speakers and the Kilbergers are emceeing. You think of these raw, raw, raw events. You don't necessarily think of a organization that can link up tens of thousands of students to volunteer opportunities. That's almost like something an employment agency would do or yeah. a volunteer organizer. That's not we thing. So that kind of was a first problem. And so because of that, uh, opposition parties started to say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Why would we charity be the ones to implement this program? It didn't make a lot of sense. Something didn't smell right. And then they started to think about it and they said, well, wait a minute, Margaret Trudeau has spoken at WE events, quite a lot of WE events. Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, who is, uh, of course, the Prime Minister's wife, has spoken at WE events. Um, Bill Morneau's daughter, who was the finance minister at the time, his daughter had worked for WE Charity. So things started to smell funnier and funnier, and I think that's really when things really went off the rails. So we remember way back when, and you know, through this investigation, that at one time the government was saying there was nobody else that could do this except we, and now we're having the ethics committee uh, committee saying that they were ill-equipped to do so. So how did we get to where we are? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I think there are certainly, I mean, if, it, it depends on who you want to, I guess, believe. If you are sympathetic to the government, you would say, well, no, they thought we... Uh, was a great charity. They thought, you know, we had pre-existing relationships with a lot of young people. Um, they had an apparatus in place. They had connected with them through a lot of these WE Day events. They um, had signed up a lot of uh, volunteer students within school. So maybe they were the type of people who would be able to do that. But then if you listen to the opposition parties, you know, there is a huge conflict of interest here. We Charity has never undertaken something like this. So, so it's a matter of two, story, two sides of the story, right? It just became this ethical uh, think, uh, anchor for, the, for the, the government, right? Because there were questions all the way through about, well, this, this doesn't sound right, how there was political interference. Um, the Kilbergers were interacting with the politicians not the public service. And then that became a question of, okay, well, is it the actual public servants who are supposed to carry out the government's will, you know, the ones who are actually organizing this, or was it the politicians who were kind of foisting their viewpoints onto the public servants? So it just became a whole huge mess. It honestly just became a huge mess, this ball of yarn of confusion and ethical questions. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where they just said, okay, you know what? The WE Charity pulled out. The government said this is not how we're going to go forward, and the program got canceled. So where is WE on this now? Because we remember when the brothers testified, they weren't too, uh, they sort of gave the illusion that they felt the government was throwing them under the bus here. Well, certainly if you were watching their testimony, they didn't really come across as reliable witnesses at yeah. the committee. They were evasive. They um, were adversarial to the opposition. They really didn't seem like credible witnesses and it really raised a lot of questions not just about the government's ethics but certainly the charity's ethics as well um, a lot of people began to look into their real estate holdings about their financials a lot of how they uh, there were allegations that they didn't treat their employees 
sort uh, all that well. So there were all these allegations that kind of bogged We Charity down. There was an announcement a few months ago, I believe, that they were going to halt their operations or cease their operations, but they're still uh, uh, hobbling along, it seems. So for We Charity, this scandal has really been quite devastating for them. I mean, they... They're 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 not the charity that they once were. I mean, if you ask people before the pandemic about We Charity, they would have said they were great. They, you know, had these motivational days for these students. They sent ch- uh, children to uh, impoverished nations where they were doing great projects. And now, after all this scrutiny, all of that has kind of gone under the microscope, and it hasn't turned out very well for them. So, I think for We Charity, they're kind of asking themselves, why did we get into this in the first place? So what does it say about the Prime Minister's office to be so linked to this organization? Well, I mean, <laughs> I think the Prime Minister's office really, I mean, if you separate that, the, their link to the organization itself, and just look at their conduct here, you know, there, there are certainly questions about whether uh, the Prime Minister and the Kilbergers who run we uh, are friends and how close they are and how close they are to the Trudeaus as a family. Um, and so it really just, to me, raises ethical questions about how the prime minister's office was dealing with and his cabinet were dealing with things. Because if you have all these pre-existing relationships on all these kind of trip wires, that's not an organization that you really push people into um, uh, giving a contract with with the government. If it had been an open bidding process and the public servants, you know, had scrutinized their application and said, you know, we charity is the best one. We're going to pick we charity. That would have been a different story. But that's not how this played out. So I think, you know, it's certainly dubious of the prime minister's office to hand the contract to We Charity because, A, they're not, they were clearly not equipped. B, there were all these questions about how they operated. But C, just because of the look of it, even, even if yeah. you, even if, if you are a liberal partisan and want to stick to the party line that the We Charity was absolutely the only organization who could do this. We were in the middle of a pandemic. We were, we, we had to act quickly. Even if you believe all of that, they have to acknowledge that certainly the look of it um, is not very good. And I think they really should assess some of their judgment in proceeding that, in that direction. Um, but I think to some extent, they've kind of learned a bit of a lesson. Um, but if you look at the ethics uh, committee, liberal members on that and the response to the report yesterday, maybe maybe there's some questions about whether they truly have learned their lesson. Hmm. Bradley Metlin with us, consultant with Upstream Strategy Group, talking about the We Charity Follow. Bradley, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.